0: This morning we will look at Zechariah's song from Luke chapter 1, verses 67 to 80. But before that, I just want to say thank you for the gift. Um, I get to have all my parties at the same time. So last Sunday was a party, today again, more presents and all of this. So this time of year, I like to be around Right. <laughs> I'm not going to take my holidays. Other times of the year, yes, but not not this time. And so thank you, um, really. Those those who know me well enough know that I'm not one for musical movies. There is The Wizard of Oz, uh, Singing in the Rain, Grease, The Endless Elvis movies, and of course The Sound of Music, amongst many others. So, this morning I'm not going to put on a musical, but we will look at one of the songs of Christmas, which is Zechariah's song. And the first chapter in the Gospel of Luke covers a lot of territory. It's a long chapter. Luke chapter 1 goes for 80 verses. And it's quite detailed in the stories of two families. Two families whose lives are intertwined in God's ultimate plan of redemption of man. The families involved are that of Jesus and that of his forerunner, John, John the the First Baptist. And here are some points of interest. The families were related to one another even though one came from the royal tribe of Judah And the other came from the priestly tribe of Levi. Both boys would be born in miraculous circumstances. One to a virgin and the other to one who was barren. She couldn't have kids. Both names were not random. They were given to the parents by God. Both boys would dedicate their lives serving the one who sent them. Both would never marry and never have kids. Their path would cross in life just as it did at birth. Both had a large group of followers and also a more close group of disciples. Both men would pay the ultimate price for total obedience with no compromise. John the Baptist's father was Zechariah and his mother was Elizabeth. We can also call them Zach and Liz. They were from the tribe of Levi. In other words, the priestly tribe that was chosen to minister in the temple. And because there were because we're talking about a whole tribe, not everybody got to serve in the temple because there were, there were many of them. So these priests were, were rostered on for temple duty by casting lots. You pick this, I'll pick that, and, I, and, you, and you will know then when it was your time to serve in the temple. Now, it just so happened God had nothing to do with it. Pure coincidence that it was now Zechariah's turn for temple duty. It was a big thing, so I'm sure he spent the previous day ironing the robe that he was going to wear. He really looked forward to this time. But apart from the privilege of serving in the temple, nothing Particularly extraordinary or unexpected ever happened on the job. Not for a very long time anyway. But this time it was going to be very different. In fact, it was going to be quite memorable. While Zechariah was on his assigned duty, temple duty that is, a high ranking angel, not any angel, but a high ranking angel called Gabriel appears on the right side of the altar, of the temple. The angel gives him the wonderful news from God that he's going to be a daddy. Zach can't believe it. No, really, he actually doesn't believe it. His answer in so many words is people in nursing homes don't have babies. Then he asks the wrong question. How can I be sure of this? Wrong question. It's the wrong question for a couple of reasons. Firstly, because he's implying that that he won't believe it, won't believe the news, unless he has some sort of sign. And it's also the wrong question because the angel told him that God had answered his prayer. So... Just pause there for a moment. You're praying for something for most of your life, your married life anyway. And you pray constantly for years and years and years and God in his time decides to answer your prayer and when he does, he says he's going to, you don't believe it. Or you don't just not believe it but you say, well, how can I be sure? Well, Let me explain to you how this works, Zechariah, you know. Anyway, because he didn't believe the message from God, Gabriel basically tells him, here's your sign. And from that moment on, for the next nine months, the next nine months of Elizabeth's pregnancy, Zechariah couldn't speak a word. For some women this will be bliss that their husbands are not able to answer anything you say you tell your husband anything you want can i go shopping can i spend money i've had an accident with a car scratched all over the side can i say anything But surely, after a while, it's going to, it's going to get to you, right? You want to communicate. Maybe they had hand signals, some writing. I don't know. Poor Elizabeth probably felt that she was, she was talking to a brick wall. I mean, that's how most women feel like anyway, isn't it? So she goes into seclusion, five months, and some of those months, she actually spends at the home of a cousin, cousin Mary. Or Mary comes over to spend it with Elizabeth is more accurate. The next time Zechariah speaks, it was to name his son John, as the angel had instructed. In that joyous moment, as he held his son in his arms, Zechariah breaks out into song. Finally, after all those months of not being able to say anything, just like in the musicals, right? He breaks out in praise to God. In Latin, it's called a Benedictus, which is a traditional name which comes from the first words as this reading was translated into Latin, Benedictus Dominus Deus, blessed be the Lord God. The lyrics to his song that he, that he writes by Revelation, uh, they, they give us another glimpse into the news of just what the incarnation, what this momentous occasion was going to be all about when God became man. It was an event that was so anticipated and wondrous that we're waiting for it. So he breaks out into a wonderful hymn of praise to God for who he is and what he's done. So we're going to break down this, this song into, to see what, what it is that, it, that he talks about. First of all, it is a song of salvation. God's act of salvation in the Bible is, is, is everywhere, but especially in the Psalms. We also love to sing about salvation and you will see this word salvation appear many times in hymns and choruses and songs that we sing. But let me ask you, do you really know what you are singing about when you are talking about salvation? Those who have been saved by God's grace know exactly what I mean. But sometimes even though the parents might have experienced the salvation from God and the kids and the grandkids are all grow up under the blessing of having their parents saved, they, they, are, they are part of the environment but they've never owned it. it it's it just take it for granted that you grew up in a Christian home but you've never really personally acknowledged this word salvation. This is why transmitting... Faith, it's impossible. You can teach, you can model it, but salvation is not... You can't sort of, you know, just the fact that you're born in a Christian family be called a Christian or a Christian country. It has to be owned personally by each generation by each individual, it has to be owned, it has to be your decision whether you want to submit your life to Jesus Christ or not. And here, Zechariah focuses on the great purpose for the coming of Jesus Christ to the earth He came to save His people. And Zechariah mentions God's saving purpose in four different ways. He says in verse 68, He has come and has redeemed His people. In verse 74, to rescue us from the hand of our enemies. Verse 77, to give His people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. God has done... Is doing and will continue to do this until the day that he returns. The, the one that really gets my attention is this one, verse sixty-nine, the fourth one that we hear, He has raised up a horn of salvation for us. It's, it's a wonderful poetic expression, the horn of salvation. But what on earth does it mean? In the Old Testament, a horn is a symbol of strength. We spoke about this in our series in Daniel. The, the figure is taken from the fact that horned animals, animals that have horns, uh, their, their strength is is concentrated on the horn. It, it becomes something you attack, you defend. Think about the great power of the, the rhino, the rhinoceros or an ox, which is manifested by the use of its, of its horn placed on its head and, and they ram each other and you know, attack and all that. It was also used as a musical instrument to announce or to declare a victory. So when this word appears in the Bible, it is often connected with the salvation, with the salvation that comes from God. So it is a song of salvation. It is also a song of promises kept. A song of promises kept. You know, it's it's actually a wonderful truth to be able to declare that our God is a God who keeps his promises. I might promise something and for the most part I try to keep it but sometimes I just forget. I said, Oh, you promised for Christmas time you're going to get me this. No, did I? No. God doesn't forget. God says something when He promises something, He will do it. And, and He will do it in His time. And this is the problem, right? Not in our time. We get a little bit impatient. In verse 70, as he said, as he said would happen through his holy prophets of long ago. As he said. To remember, in verse 72, to remember his holy covenant. In verse 73, the oath he swore to our father Abraham. So he goes back and back and back and all those those promises from God. What he said he will do, he does. And this is the moment when he's going to do it. And you must have thought that for about 400 years there wasn't much happening. There was a period of silence between the prophets Malachi and the coming of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew. And, And what's going to happen with God's promises? 400 years is a long, long time. But now, at long last, he's going to fulfil his promise. All that he said he would do, he has begun to accomplish. The prophets saw it coming, but they didn't go into every detail. And while no one saw it clearly, they knew the day would come when God would personally, in a very special way, visit his people. So, with such anticipation... How could this child be anything but great? His preparation took thousands of years. So this is no small event. In fact, his coming his coming is actually the biggest event in all of history. All before that pointed to him. All that comes after looks back. To him and everything that will come forward into the future from here on until he comes again, until he returns, always points to him. He is the centrepiece of history because history only makes sense when he is at the centre of it. This is why it's right and proper for us to celebrate Christmas in a proper way. What else is this song about? This song is also a song of enablement. Enablement. This is a a very important aspect of the ministry of the Messiah. And Zechariah speaks of the transformation the promised Messiah will make in the lives of those who, who follow him. Amongst many other blessings that we will receive through the Saviour, through Jesus, His coming will enable us to serve Him without fear, He says in verse 74. It will enable us to serve Him without fear. Fear of who? What are we scared of? In fear of their enemies. Throughout their history, the Israelites always lived in the shadow of their enemies. Everybody was taking turns to conquer Israel. It, it, as we see even today, the piece of real estate right there, where it is now, is the most volatile piece of real estate in the world. So if you see an advertisement, a real estate agent advertising, quiet neighborhood. In Israel. I say, well, no it's not. In fact, look at the history. And the history of Christianity hasn't been much different for the last two thousand years. Do you know what it's like to serve the Lord without fear? And there is wide evidence that some of the the bravest Martyrs of this generation, not all that long ago, are not adults. We tend to think that the martyrs are all old people, you know, who deserve to die anyway, right? But no, some of the the martyrs of today are actually teenagers, young people, perhaps even younger. I read a, a story of uh, when the war in Iraq was at its worst. I read the story of some children in the war in Iraq who were, who were to be executed, and unless they, they renounced their faith, they were going to be executed. And so when Islamic State militants threatened four children in Iraq, all under the age of 15, they were threatened with death if they did not promise to follow the Prophet Muhammad. And they defiantly stated, no, we love Joshua or Jesus. We have always followed Joshua. And I suppose you can imagine what happens happens next. They were executed for their declaration because they would not bow. They were young people. They would not surrender. Serving the Lord without fear. Fear of what? Fear of death. And we look around and we, we, have, we are so caught up in this whole safety aspect of our lives. We even have a safe church program that churches are involved with. Everything is about safety at work, on the road. It's all about safety. But there are also other fears as a result of trying to be safe physically and all of that. We provide safety for our investments and all that. There are other powerful fears the fear or, or shame to express our faith for the fear of being ridiculed, losing friends, somebody making fun of us. Let me ask you, do your friends know you're a Christian? Your neighbours, do they know? Have you ever shared the gospel with them? If not, it's probably a sign that you fear shame or been ostracised. Happens to most of us, unless we just got to call it for what it is. We're afraid. We're living in fear. And then there is the fear of life itself. So many people today living their lives in quiet, anxious desperation. Every time they get a sniffle, they've got to run to the doctor. Lock yourself up. You don't shake hands wear masks, all of this, fear of life itself. But but beyond that, beyond the fear of getting sick and and all that, there is no answer to the question, why am I here? What am I supposed to do? Why? What's the reason for living? So many people, philosophers and others offering answers, but they all come up short with no meaning to life itself. We, We don't. We don't know why we're here. Yet for the true believer, he knows that this question has been answered for the ages in the person of Jesus Christ. And Zechariah makes the answer quite clear that Jesus Christ came to, to give our lives Purpose and joy for the glorious service of our God. The ultimate purpose is there loving and serving Jesus. He saved you so that you might fulfill your highest calling in the universe to serve God without fear in righteousness and holiness forever. That is the purpose. It is also a song of preparation, a song of preparation. Now Zechariah considers the significance of his his infant son, that his son is not the Saviour, his son is going to be John the Baptist. And and he holds him in his arms, and in verse seventy six and seventy seven he speaks directly to his son as he's holding him. I can imagine him holding him and, and utters three specific predictions. About this special child who will go ahead of the Savior, Jesus Christ. And in verse 76, he says, "And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High." Then in 76 again, you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him." And in verse 77, "To give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness." of sins, of their sins. And this is exactly what John the Baptist did. He knew his mission in life even before before he knew why he was here. He, He was already given a purpose. His whole mission in life was to make the nation ready for the coming Messiah. The fulfillment of prophecy that goes all the way back to Isaiah chapter 40. A father... Old in age, right? He's already in his senior years holding a miracle baby. Not his grandson, his his actual son. It'll be a a pretty proud moment. And we all like to think, I think, that that our kids are going to be someone special, right? As a father, you you like to think that. But holding a baby that, that has a very special calling on his life, even before conception... And preparing the way for the one, the big one, is really something else. At this moment in time, John is just eight days old. And his father clearly sees, through God's revelation, clearly sees the work that God has called him to do, the task before him. In life, John will perform his task very well, admirably. And yes, there were moments of doubt as he lingered in prison. But he also knew that he wasn't worthy to untie the sandals of Jesus, let alone worthy to baptise him on that, that glorious day when heaven opened, the Father Holy Spirit and the Son, they're getting baptised. I should come to you and you come to me. What a privilege! What a privilege! And John grew up knowing that he was the man God had chosen to prepare the way for the saviour of the world. So It is, I think, it's a wonderful thing to discover your place in God's plans and and to fulfill your, your purposeful mission in life, to know what you're about. I think it's great. And it doesn't really matter whether your part is great or small, but you are important and you have to play your part. So perhaps rather than saying to our kids, go and do something great, which can easily lead to frustration and broken dreams, perhaps say something like, do your bit, great or small, but do something. Don't waste your life. It's too precious. It's worth too much. Somebody paid a very big price for you. You see, in, in, in whatever field of endeavour we involve ourselves, we, we need to think like, like John and and, and and make his statements something, something of our own. When, when John said in John 3.30, he said, He must become greater and greater and I must become less and less. Jesus is greater and I'm heading the other way. But in heading the other way, I'm actually making him greater and greater. How contrary to the world we live in with the individualistic goals of today. It's all about me. Don't you dare insult me. Don't you dare offend me. Well, maybe in somebody offending you and calling you this and that, maybe that's God's way of making you less and less and making his son greater and greater. Maybe it's in, it's in the fact that suffering shame for his cause is actually lifting him up and us turning us down. It's okay for your pride to get dented. It's okay. It's okay. If, if if the reason is to make you less and less and making him bigger and bigger, then give praise to God. That's the story of Christianity for the last couple of thousand years. It's not about you, it's about him. It is also finally a song of illumination. In, in a song of illumination, in in one final burst of praise, it's like uh, the musicals have their crescendo, the moment, right? Like in, in normal movies, it's the car chase to the airport, blah blah blah. In music, the peak, it's you know everything comes together. The peak. I don't know Liz will probably tell me what it's called, but anyway. What is it? Finale. The finale. That's it, the finale. Right. Oh, it's very simple, very very pointed. Yes, the finale. In one final burst of praise, Zachariah speaks of three great blessings that the coming of Christ brings to earth and, and as, he, as His light shines in our dark world. In verse 78, the rising sun will come to us from heaven. The rising sun will come to us from heaven. Verse 79, to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death. Verse 79, to guide our feet into the path of peace. And this this theme of, of light and darkness is repeated right throughout the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation. It's all there. Those who do not believe in Jesus Christ, are described as living in darkness. Whereas those who believe and surrender to him are described as living in the light. There's a story that from the 1960s, in the 1960s, two, two people uh, volunteered to participate in research on the effects of darkness on the human psyche the effects of darkness on the human psyche. So they entered separate caves, pitch black, while researchers tracked their eating and sleeping habits. One remained in total darkness for 88 days, the other 126 days. Total darkness. Each guessed how long they could remain in darkness And their guesses, their guesstimates were off by months. There's no way to track. You're in a cave, total darkness, you you couldn't track it. One took what he thought was a short nap, only to discover he'd been asleep for 30 hours. I know what that feels like, right? Now come holiday time. Short nap, still asleep. Hibernation. darkness is disorienting. Quite often you hear the expression uh, we have lost our way as a nation. It's usually expressed in the context of government policy and wider theological and sociological matters, you know, when senseless murders occur and you know all that stuff and and somebody somebody somewhere makes a statement we have made we have gone in the wrong way we have lost our way and you know what it's it's probably true because it's very easy to get lost when it's dark this is what happens when a whole society chooses darkness one Obviously, one thing is to recognise the problem. The other is to actually find a solution and act upon it. Most problems that we face have to do with the fact that we have walked away from God. But we don't want God intruding in our lives. We don't want Him coming and telling us how to live, what to do. Yeah, 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 we'll, we'll sing the Christmas carols, we'll sing about... Salvation and all of this, but please, please don't ask me to change my life because of some baby born in Bethlehem somewhere 2,000 years ago. It's my life. I'm going to live it. And then follow that to the level of, of government and a country and a nation, a continent. We try to erase God from the public sphere. And then you ask yourself, why is there so much darkness? Well, because you're trying to switch God off. But it's impossible because His light will continue to shine. You can pull the curtains back on your window and pretend it's dark in your room, but the sun is shining outside. You've just got to pull back the curtains. It's a beautiful day outside. The prophet Isaiah said of the coming Messiah, Isaiah chapter 9 verse 2, The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. It wasn't just darkness, it was deep darkness, the type that you can't even see your hand in front of your face. And yet Isaiah prophesied this is exactly what the Messiah would be be doing. And when he appeared, when he lived, when he died and when he rose again, he gave us a choice. You can choose darkness or choose light. Which way do you want to live? Some people are walking towards the light, but the majority are actually walking away from it. Conclusion. Let me draw my conclusion from the Benedictus of Zechariah. Well, like I said, nothing like this has ever happened before. God has visited his people and from this moment on, nothing will ever be the same again because of Jesus Christ. He has come to save his people and forgive their sins. He has kept his promises he has come to release us from our fears. He has come to give us a, a purpose, a mission in life. And he has come to guide us on how to truly live our lives. What a wonderful Savior we have. Our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Would you stand and sing our final song with us?